Today's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is God's word. Well, good morning. It's um, great to be with you all again. Uh, my name's Devin. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Culture, and it's um, a joy to be able to bring you God's word today. Uh, we're continuing um, our series today in the book of Luke, which we're focusing on chapter 9. Um, We've been saying in chapter 9 that it is about Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure, for life without him. Um, And so again this week, we're looking at what does it mean to follow Jesus in our world today. Uh, So let's pray as we begin. Lord, help us today to not just be hearers of your word, but doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Over the past couple of weeks, I've been trying to work out why our society is so obsessed with sport. And when I mean our society, I really mean me. Uh, Because a common saying to describe our country's obsession with sport is that to Aussies, sport is a religion. Um, According to McCrindle Research, Australians spend four times as much time watching sport at home, two and a half hours a week, than doing religious activities, 35 minutes a week. Um, If you caught the great debate a few weeks ago between Anthony Albanese and Scott Morrison, you'll remember the final pivotal question of that debate was, will sport be available free to air? It's fair to say, isn't it, that sport may be the most dominant religion in Australia. Um, I was speaking to Mark D'Souza, one of the, our members at Cross Culture. Uh, Mark is a huge soccer fan, and every Sunday morning at 3 a.m., Mark would wake up to watch Manchester United play. Uh, he doesn't do that as much now. He's, now he's married to Tamara. But sadly for Mark this season, he's woken up to a lot of disappointment. So what makes Mark wake up at 3 a.m. every Sunday morning to watch Manchester United lose? (laughs) Um, As I pondered this question for myself, this is what struck me, because 
Um, last year, I woke up at 3 a.m. in the morning to watch my team, uh, the Chelsea Football Club, win the Champions League final. Thanks for the clap. It's, it was the biggest trophy of the year. And I realized that in that moment, I was experiencing glory. I was encountering things I could never do. Athletes doing things I could never dream of and winning the greatest prize. Um, When the final whistle sounded and Chelsea won, the players dropped to their knees in disbelief. Tears of joy flowed from their eyes. Um, They actually interviewed uh, one of the Chelsea players after who'd had a really bad season, a tough season. They asked him how he'd felt about that bad season. And he said, in in more colourful language than this, but he said... I don't care. We just won the Champions League. Um, As for me, I couldn't stop jumping and screaming, uh, screaming silently so I wouldn't wake up Nat. And so did millions of people all around the world because in that moment we realised all the disappointment, all the losses, all the heartache of the past, all the early mornings didn't matter. Because for that one moment, on the 29th of May, 2021, we experienced glory. Um, In our passage today, we get a glimpse of Jesus in His glory. Uh, And today, we're going to see how Jesus' glory frees us to make great sacrifices for Him. Uh, In chapter 9, verse 28... Uh, If you open your Bibles, Luke begins this passage with these words. He says, Now about eight days after these things. Which means that this passage is connected to what's just come before. And as we look back in our Bibles, we see that Jesus has just been talking about his death. Uh, You'll remember verse 20, Peter rightly declares Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised King that we've been waiting for. But Peter hasn't yet grasped what this really means. And so in verse 21, Jesus redefines what it means to be the Messiah as a king who would suffer, be rejected and die. And not only that, Jesus says, verse 23, that the pattern of his life would be the pattern of our lives. He says, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves take up their cross daily and follow me. These are heavy words that um, Takeshi unpacked for us last week. And so what Luke is indicating now is that in order to follow Jesus into his suffering, you really need what's coming next. You need to witness glory. Um, So Jesus takes up with him Peter, John and James. Uh, They go up a mountain and pray. Um, And as soon as you hear this word mountain in the Bible, you know something special is about to happen. Um, You'll remember when Moses goes up Mount Sinai to meet with God and receive the law. Uh, You might remember the prophet Elijah who goes up to Mount Carmel. He calls down fire on his enemies, revealing God's glory and power. On mountains, God meets with his people. Um, It's why some people have tried to set up prayer mountains. Um, Some people even try and use Mount Dandenong as a prayer mountain, but you don't need to do that. You can can just go for scones. But you see, anyway, Jesus goes up 
to pray on this mountain in verse 29, and the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. This is known as the transfiguration. Uh, It's a weird word, but it literally means that Jesus' figure was transformed. Um, It's a picture of Jesus in his glory. It's, It's a preview of the future glory. He will come when he returns. Um, Over the centuries, many artists have tried to paint Jesus, uh, normally with long, flowing hair, with blue eyes, holding a lamb. And you see, we can often just think of Jesus as this gentle, humble, ordinary man. We we put his face on a t-shirt, we make his face into a bobblehead. But you see, if this is all Jesus means to you, you're not seeing the full picture. So here in this passage, we get to peer behind the veil. What does Jesus look like in the fullness of his glory? Who is he really? Uh, On earth, he's a humble servant who would suffer and die in weakness. But here we get a vision of a ruling and reigning God of the universe who will save his people and judge his enemies. In in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel sees a terrifying vision of a powerful figure known as the Son of Man. And this vision is strikingly similar. You see, Daniel sees a face like lightning, fire from his eyes, the brightness of his experience, and and all Daniel can do in verse 9 is fall on his face in terror. He basically passes out. He's completely overwhelmed by his experience of glory. And that person that Daniel saw is Jesus. In the transfiguration, Jesus is revealed as the powerful Son of Man who's actually a little bit scary. Um, Think about the sun in our universe. The sun gives us light and life. We need the sun. We're familiar with it. But it's a bit dangerous to get too close. Actually, you can't look directly at the sun without going blind. You see, the sun is both majestic and dangerous at the same time. How much more the glory of Jesus, whose glory replaces the sun in Revelation 21. The transfiguration is Jesus peeling back the layers to show us what he's really like. You see, without the transfiguration, you might like Jesus, you might think he's a good guy, I mean, most people do, whether they're Christian or not, but without this glorious picture of Jesus, you will never fall at his feet in worship, you will never give him the respect he deserves, you will never make costly sacrifices for his cause. See, when we go through tough times, our problems can seem so big. And God can seem so small. And so the transfiguration reorients our hearts to a Jesus who is all-powerful, who is all-sovereign and who works all things for our good. But you see, this picture of future glory might not come quite as you'd expect. Because notice who's with Jesus in verse 30. It's Moses and Elijah. 
they too appear in glory. And what do they speak with Jesus about? They speak about his departure. Notice next to that word departure, you might see a little footnote in your Bible. And this footnote tells us that this word departure literally means exodus. Exodus. Um, The exodus is the great Old Testament event of salvation where God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And this language of exodus here is applied to Jesus to anticipate that Jesus is about to do something even greater. I want you to think about it because of all the things that they could have discussed, as Jesus, as Moses, as Elijah stand in glory together, their focus is on Jesus' death. It's on his death that he will accomplish at Jerusalem, his own departure, his own exodus where he will be crucified and killed in Jerusalem. Do you see what's happening? The transfiguration doesn't just reveal Jesus' glory. No, it reveals his path to glory. The transfiguration shows that actually suffering and glory go together. And so it makes sense why the transfiguration happens straight after Jesus has just talked about his death. Because Jesus' glory is achieved through his suffering. To atone for our sins, to bring us into relationship with him. And actually Moses and Elijah here, these two people represent the whole Old Testament. Uh, Moses as a representative for God's law, the first five books of the Bible. Elijah as a prophet in the Old Testament who points forward to God's future salvation and rescue. Uh, You'll see Malachi 4 talks about the coming of the prophet Elijah to herald the great day of the Lord. A great day of salvation for God's people and a day of judgment for his enemies. You see, these two figures reveal the whole Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ in His glory through His suffering. If you want to know what the Old Testament is about, it's actually the same as the New. It's all about Jesus. The Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed. The New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. And that the centerpiece of the whole of Scripture is a cross, a picture of glory through suffering. And you see, as Jesus will hang on that cross in Jerusalem, the world will think that it is a place of humiliation. But in reality, the cross is the place of glory, where Jesus defeats his enemies of Satan, sin and death, and wins for us the greatest prize, our exodus, our salvation. I want you to think about the story of our nation. Um, The story of our nation is the Anzac story, which is one of glory through sacrifice. Uh, It's the story of Australian and New Zealand soldiers who set out to Gallipoli in 1915 and who sacrificed their lives to win our future. It's a theme of glory through suffering. And isn't it interesting that the story that shapes our nation is actually a military battle we lost? See, the theme of glory through suffering is embedded in the history of our nation. 
And in the same way, the cross isn't just the story of our nation. No, it's the story of humanity. It's the story of the suffering and self-sacrifice of the God of the universe to bring us glory. That's what the transfiguration's about. It's about witnessing glory. And so what do we do with this? How should we respond? Well, we'll see that the transfiguration demands that we listen carefully. Um, Because as all this takes place, what are Peter, James and John doing? They're sleeping. But then they wake up to see the glorified Jesus and Moses and Elijah with him. And so what does Peter do? Straight away, in verse 33, he makes three tents. One for Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And look at the end of verse 33. Luke says that Peter did these things not knowing what he said. That's not good. That's the Bible's way of saying, Peter, you have no idea what you're just saying. Why is this? Well, by seeking to build three tents for each of them, Peter is placing Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah, maybe because he sees them all appear in glory. Remember, even though he's just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, he still hasn't grasped who Jesus is. He hasn't been listening. Because when Moses meets with God um, on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, and as Moses comes down the mountain, his face was radiant from having spoken with the Lord. So radiant that it terrifies people. But you see, where Moses' glory is a reflected glory from being with God, Jesus' glory comes from the core of his being. Jesus isn't just an ordinary person. He isn't just one God amongst many gods that are interchangeable and you can pick and choose. No, Jesus is entirely unique. Jesus stands alone as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, Also, in building these three booths, Peter wants these visitors to prolong their stay. He wants to continue this glorious mountaintop experience forever. Uh, Perhaps like when you're on a holiday, you don't kind of want to come home and deal with real life. You kind of just want to stay on that beautiful holiday forever. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, in wanting to build these three tents, Peter doesn't want Elijah or Moses to depart. He doesn't want Jesus to depart either. He wants glory now, without the suffering of Jerusalem. See, we we live in a culture that seeks glory now, not glory later. We, we, We want to shortcut the cost of discipleship and fast forward to the rewards of discipleship. Um, You might remember the Adam Sandler film called Click. Um, And in this film, Adam Sandler stumbles across a remote control that looks like a TV remote. Um, And the remote allows him to fast forward his life, fast forward the bits that are boring, painful or difficult. It allows him to skip the bad bits and only live through the good bits. wonder if you felt like this before. Maybe you're looking for that remote now. Hopefully not. You see, like Peter, our culture wants glory now, not glory later. 
Um, Over the years, anthropologists have divided human culture into three predominant worldviews. Um, Guilt innocence, generally from the West, Um, shame honour, generally from the East, and power fear in animistic cultures. But more recently, a new worldview has emerged called pleasure pain. Um, It's a worldview where humans are driven to seek pleasure and avoid pain where we make decisions based on what feels good to us and avoid things that feel bad. But you see, as as we live like this, we fall into Peter's trap. Like Peter, we want glory now. We want the crown without the cross. We want the transfiguration without Jesus' death in Jerusalem. And only later will Peter realize that suffering was necessary to achieve glory because there's no forgiveness without atonement, there's no crown without a cross. And so in verse 34, a cloud overshadows them. Um, In the Bible, clouds are associated with encountering the Lord. Uh, Like when Moses goes up Mount Sinai, Exodus 24, a cloud covers the mountain representing God's presence. And now a voice from the cloud speaks, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. God the Father confirms what they've just witnessed. And He says three things. First, this is my Son. Jesus is God's King. Jesus is the Son of Man in Daniel 10 that we saw earlier. Then He says, My Chosen One. This language of Jesus as the suffering servant, um, God's chosen servant in Isaiah 42. You see, God the Father is saying, not only is Jesus the powerful and reigning king, but he's the suffering servant who would die for the transgressions of his people. It is suffering and glory. And then lastly, God says, listen to him, listen to him. I wonder if if you were to finish that sentence, what would you expect? God says, this is my son, my chosen one. Worship him or follow him? Why listen to him? Well, I think um, by trying to build these three tents, Peter has failed to listen. He's failed to properly hear what Jesus has just said about his destiny and his departure in Jerusalem. You see, Peter, there's no need for three tents. Peter, what you need is to listen to one voice. The voice of Jesus. His words about who he is and what he's come to do. That he's not just the Messiah and the powerful Son of Man, but he's the suffering servant who would die for his people because the pathway to glory is through suffering. And after witnessing Jesus in his glory, what the disciples needed most was simply to hear his voice. Uh, Similar to Deuteronomy 18, where God promises to raise up a prophet like Moses, and the job of God's people is to listen to him. And here, Jesus is that new prophet. Jesus is the new Moses who, through his words, will guide and direct his people and lead them to salvation. 
seen more than ever, there is a great need for us as a church to listen to Jesus. Because you see, like Jesus, our glory will also too take the root of suffering as we take up our cross and follow him. Um, A pastor, Stephen McAlpine, he wrote a book last year called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. Um, And in this book, he talks about how Christians are no longer seen as having a positive effect on society or even a neutral effect. No, he says Christians are now seen to have a negative effect on society. Uh, He talks about how Christianity is now seen as a message of anti-freedom, of anti-truth and anti-love. And you see, with this sentiment and this pressure we will feel the pull to not take up our cross. We will feel the pull to assimilate into this culture around us, to to reject our identity as suffering glory people and instead embrace the pleasure-pain framework around us. See, when the voice of the world is so strong, to keep going, we need the power of a greater voice, God's Word a voice that sobers us to the reality of life now and a voice that reorients us to Jesus' glory and the future glory that awaits. Um, Today we've seen the, the transfiguration forges the path to glory through suffering. Uh, we've seen the need to listen to Jesus' words who guides us safely to glory You see, the transfiguration is a preview of the glorious return of Jesus, but this plan is only possible at the cost of his exodus, his death. And it's the same for us. For us, it is suffering now, glory later. Suffering now, glory later. Um, Perhaps you've been a Christian for a while now. Um, And maybe as you look back on your life, as you think back of all the suffering and the sacrifices you've made for Christ, you may find yourself asking, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Was it worth looking silly in front of my friends and colleagues for telling them that I'm a Christian who loves Jesus? Was it worth seeking to live a life of integrity, seeking to obey Jesus even those times when no one was watching? Was it worth all those times trying to fight temptation to say no to worldly pleasures when to give in would have been the easier choice? Was it worth being generous to the work of the gospel when I could have used that money for a car or a deposit or a better lifestyle? Was it worth giving up on that lucrative career or that promotion to spend time leading or serving in church? Was it worth not pursuing a potential spouse because they didn't share the same love for Jesus? Were all those sacrifices worth it to follow Jesus? Perhaps you're here today and you're considering becoming a Christian and you're asking this same question, is it worth it? Is it worth living a life of self-denial and giving my life to Jesus? Do you see, this is why 
we need to encounter glory. We need the transfiguration, which isn't just a preview of Christ's future glory, but the future glory to come for all of us that we will share in when He returns. Isn't it funny that even in something so trivial as sport, you can feel the weight and value of glory? Um, When our sports heroes win, um, when our teams and clubs triumph, all the suffering, all the losses, all the disappointments of the years past become a distant memory. You see, when you encounter triumph and glory, you forget you've just woken up at 3 a.m. in the morning. And actually, in a strange sense, all the pain of the past, all the losses, all the sacrifices along the way make the glory all the more great. Uh, In Revelation 5, we get a vision of our future in heaven. And at the center of heaven on the throne is what? A lamb who had been slain. You see, even in the glory of the new creation, the Lamb bears the scars of His suffering and sacrifice. Suffering and sacrifice don't diminish His glory, it establishes His glory. And one day, as you stand before the throne of Jesus in His glory, as you share in His glory, you will know that all the pain, all the suffering, all the sacrifices, all the tears were worth it. It was always worth it. Because the glory will be so good. The glory of the gospel is that the the gospel allows us to take our losses now. It allows us to lose out in this life because in the end we win. And so as we keep our eyes fixed on the glory of Jesus, every sacrifice now will become a distant memory in light of eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, lift our eyes to the glory of Jesus. Lift our eyes to that day when we stand with Jesus, sharing in His glory. Lord, give us boldness and confidence to stand with Jesus through suffering. Give us a a willingness to take our losses now, because in the end we win. In Jesus' powerful name. Amen.